This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Thank you for joining me. I'm Norman B. and This is Life Elsewhere. Coming up, my conversation with Elizabeth Williamson, feature writer for the New York Times. Her new book is Sandy Hook, an American tragedy and the battle for truth. This is a crucially important work. And in our conversation, we're going to cover certain areas that some listeners may find uncomfortable. Also in the show, Ukrainian electronic artist Sixth Crowd with a new single, Sokolonko, inspired by a Ukrainian harvest song, which she was working on as Russia invaded her home, turning her country into a war zone. Proceeds will go to aiding people, evacuate and providing humanitarian aid. Here's a sample of the instrumental version of Sokolonko. Then, my conversation with Elizabeth Williamson on her book, Sandy Hook. titled Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Now, in my opinion, this is a landmark investigation of the aftermath of the school shooting at Sandy Hook and how some of the Sandy Hook parents went about defending themselves and the truth of their children's fates against the horrendous distortions of online deniers and conspiracy theorists. Elizabeth Williamson is the author. Elizabeth, welcome to Life Elsewhere. It's wonderful to be with you, Norman. My very first thing that I have to say to you, Elizabeth, is thank you so much for writing this book. It's an extraordinary work. In vivid detail, you share with the readers all the parts that we need to know but wish weren't true. For example, I hope you don't mind, I'd just like to read a piece right from the very beginning of the book, just to set things up so my my audience understands what I'm talking about. Of course. You recount how Sergeant Bill Cario, one of the first police that runs into the school, and this is what he describes in his text, in his report. And as you say, it's detached official language that turns ragged 
and anguished. And Cario writes, as I stared in disbelief, I recognized the face of a little boy. I then began to realize that there were other children around the little boy and that this was actually a pile of dead children. I have to tell you, and I know that's not that you're quoting somebody else there from an official report, but that stopped me in my tracks, Elizabeth. I, I, I just was completely, I, I just had to sort of sit back for a moment and just gulp. I mean, it just, the, the image was just so, oh my goodness. Talk to me about collating that information like that. It must've been just horrible for you too. My thought is always with um, the people who lived this, you know, just imagining what that must have been like. And, you know, I, I've gotten to know Bill Cario, the officer who filed that report um, over the years. And, you know, years later, he told me a story um, about being in Hartford for a hearing um, attended by one of the most notorious conspiracy theorists in the book, a man named Wolfgang Halbig, who made two dozen trips to Newtown, who hunted these um, victims' family members, um, who filed hundreds of pages of public information requests seeking details about the crime that he felt would support his false theories about the case. Um, and when he didn't receive these records or they weren't to his liking, he was entitled by law to a hearing in Hartford, Connecticut, the capital. So uh, for one of these hearings, they, they grew so boisterous and, um, and borderline threatening over the years because they were attended by a number of these conspiracy theorists that they began assigning um, law enforcement just to monitor them. And it just happened that Bill Cario, who had witnessed that horrible scene in classroom 10, was assigned to one of these meetings. And to, to just to have him there observing this absolute denier of this tragedy um, as someone who had encountered and reported that scene was just extraordinary to me. Uh. And... Bill, you know, is is a person who, you know, wouldn't really uh, engage with these people at all. But he just noted, you know, the irony of it. Um, and, you know, thinking as he's looking at this bombastic man who's seeking these records just and raising tens of thousands of dollars in his pursuit of what he called Sandy Hook truth. It, it was just, you know, beyond appalling to me. But, um, you know, Bill just sort of took it in stride. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. What a remarkable story that is. Yes. And I'm so glad that you shared that because that adds even more. Oh, my gosh. It just adds so much more. Not that there isn't a lot in this book already. The book is Sandy Hook, an American tragedy and the battle for truth. My guest is Elizabeth Williamson. As I said, when I read that particular sentence, I, it just stopped me in my tracks. But I have to also say that there were so many times that I stopped and went, oh, just gulped for air. Because I don't know, I'm sure you must have heard this before and people have said this to you, Elizabeth. But as a father, as a parent, 
it's it's unimaginable. You 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 just cannot. That's the worst nightmare that you could possibly have, is that your child gets hurt or or injured, let alone killed, let alone that other people will then say this is a hoax. What a horrible horrible thing to happen. But these parents, and let's talk about the parents because this is a really big part of your book. Lenny and Veronique Posner, Robbie and Elisa Parker, Neil Heslin and, and Scarlett Lewis. Let's talk about those people and how for you, when you started to talk to them, because you got to know them over the years, mm-hmm. that must have been such a difficult conversation to have with any parent that has lost their child in such terrible manner. Talk to me about just the beginnings of that, about meeting them and talking to them. Absolutely. And because we've just talked about um, what is probably the most graphic part of the book, one thing I do want to hesitate to, or not hesitate, but I do want to hasten to say yes. is these uh, family members who you just mentioned, um, the story is told through uh, the parents of three victims and the central character being Lenny Posner, who yes. is father of Noah, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, who um, decided early on to make it his life's work to take on these conspiracy theorists, as well as the social media platforms on which their false claims have spread so widely. Um, They did this, you know, reliving the worst moments of their life um, because they believe that this book will make people angry enough that they join the families in their effort to push for some change to this coarsening and erosion of our online public discourse. Um, And I've read, you know, um, as I see people reacting to the book, you know, people who are reading it, some will say, and this is absolute human nature, and I'm not criticizing this, you know, I can't bear it. I, Mm. I can't, I actually can't pick up this book because I can't think about that day. Um, And that is actually the thing that the families hope won't happen because they don't want us to turn away. And I was saying this to Scarlett Lewis last night, as a matter of fact, on the phone, I said, I just feel like we owe it to all of you to to engage with this this material and to read what happened so that we leave the book angry enough to contact members of Congress for policy changes and these social media platforms themselves to demand that they do better cleaning up this trash that spreads on their platforms. And Scarlett was saying, well, you don't owe it to us. You actually all owe it to yourselves, to each other, Um, which I think is really true. So um, yeah, I would encourage anyone who, you know, is, is, um, reticent to take up this material because we all remember where we were on that day. People don't understand. And it's something that can affect all of us and that we all should push to change. Absolutely right. And, and so well said, Elizabeth, because there's a lot of other things that are tied into this, not only the peculiar thing that happened with social media and how that distorted everything, but also the whole issue of guns, the whole issue of, I mean, there's so many different things that come into this, which is why I said to you at the beginning, 
you give us all the parts we need to know, but wish weren't true. So I totally agree with you. And I thank you so much for saying that. I want to talk right now about Robbie Parker, because I believe Robbie was the first one to speak publicly about his daughter. Can you talk about that? Because that was completely misunderstood. So as Robbie stepped to the lectern that night, he was unnerved by all of the reporters that were there. And he gave a little half gasp, half laugh as um, he began his presentation. Um, and what happened was that Alex Jones seized on that split second in what was an otherwise heartbreaking and wrenching reminiscence of Emily and her life that Robbie delivered. And he used that split second to cast him as an actor who was getting into character as he stepped to the lectern and someone who had faked his daughter's death and was potentially profiting from that ruse. Um, so this was repeated on Alex Jones's show, Infowars, many times over years. And his audience seized upon that and they, um, began uh, to hunt the Parker family online. They defaced a fundraising site um, that was set up on Facebook in order to raise money to fly Emily's body to Utah for burial. Um, they put the most horrific claims um, on the Parker's personal social media pages, um, a Facebook friend request from Adam Lanza, the, gu the gunman, um, things like that. Um, this happened through years. And Robbie was one of the families in my book um, after Sandy Hook, who decided that they would try to ignore these conspiracy theorists that if you feed the, you know, don't feed the trolls and they'll go away. Yeah. Um, so for years, he tried to do this. And in 2016, um, he was in Seattle. Yes. He and his family were invited to uh, a, a kind of fundraising gala, um, and a portion of the program would be a tribute to Emily, their daughter. Um, so they were invited to come and stay in a hotel, and their little girls, um, Emily's little sisters, were excited about this. They would come and swim in the pool, and they would all get to dress up and attend this gala event. And um, Robbie dropped them at the hotel went to park the car. And as he was walking back on the street in Seattle, a man approached him, completely normally dressed, you know, looked like, you know, any businessman you'd see on the street in Seattle. He stopped and said, don't I know you? And Robbie being sort of accustomed to this, stopped and thought he was offering condolences. So he extended his hand to the man who ignored it and proceeded to just spit the most vile, profane accusations at him, accusing him of faking his daughter's death and saying, how do you live with yourself? And calling him names. Robbie tried to keep walking and the man followed him and just continued to do this. And then he said Emily's name. Robbie spun around and said, how do you live with yourself? And they had a confrontation um, shouting in the street, um, which if you ever meet Robbie, was completely out of character for him, but he had just had it. And this was 2016, which was really a landmark year for this, because in January of that year, a woman was arrested and jailed for making death threats against 
the family of Lenny Posner, father of Noah, the youngest Sandy Hook victim. Um, then later in um, the fall was this confrontation that Robbie had on the street in Seattle. And by the way, this is 3,000 miles and four years distant from the Sandy Hook shooting. So yes. this just gives you an idea of the power of these lies to spread and to endure. And, um, and then later that same year um, in December was when a gunman who believed in the Pizzagate theory that democratic elites were trafficking children from the basement of a pizzeria um, called Comet here in Washington, really uh, a very short walk from where I'm sitting speaking with you today, Norman. Yes, yes. A man came into a pizzeria filled with children and fired a weapon three times because he thought he was liberating these trafficked children from a restaurant, which by the way, does not have a basement. So right. this was a pivotal year, 2016. This was a campaign year. It was a year in which misinformation and disinformation flowed freely, um, politically um, motivated, ideologically motivated lies um, were in the news every day. And people began to show that they were willing to take action, that they were willing to travel from the virtual to the real world and confront the so-called villains in these bogus plots and to act on their false convictions with violence. Right. That story that you tell about the uh, the perpetrator there, Mr. Perfield, I believe ended up in jail. He had mental problems. Am I right about that? That was a separate time. Yes. Uh, um, yes. The Parkers yes. began getting letters when they were in Newtown still at their home, which really unnerved them because it meant that whoever was writing to them knew where they lived. Um, there were several different authors of these threatening letters, but one of them was a man named Kevin Perfield, uh, who had yeah. been in trouble with law enforcement for um, going after the, the families of um, the Aurora shooting victims in the theater earlier that same year, 2012. He tormented 11 of the 12 victims' families, and he was um, incarcerated briefly for that. Um, he has a history of mental health problems, and at the time that he was arrested for uh, what he was doing um, to the Aurora families, law enforcement didn't know that he had also been writing to the Parkers because they hadn't said anything. They really firmly believed that they, if they didn't say anything, that this would stop, that these people would forget about them and move on. But that confrontation in 2016 convinced Robbie that, you know, two things. One, this is not going to end. This, right. These people won't go away. They won't forget. And two, I'm now four years distant from that extreme grief in which he couldn't do anything but try to care for his family. Uh, and now he felt like I'm going to pay this forward. And on behalf of other people who by then were also coming in for this kind of threat and harassment, including a family that they met after the Parkland shooting who had lost their daughter in that Florida shooting. Uh, he decided, I'm going to take action and try and help all these families. So he joined one of the four defamation lawsuits that were filed in 2018 against Alex Jones. 
You know, Elizabeth, that scene about that confrontation in Seattle, like the rest of your book, it is so well written. I am talking to Elizabeth Williamson. Her book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. I do want to just quickly go back to the beginning of your book and talk about Neil Heslin. His son, Jesse, died at Sandy Hook, but he was the man that gives you a tour. You meet him and he gives you a tour around Newtown. That's fascinating because we get to see, we get to, we get to visit Newtown with you. Let's hear from you, from, from Elizabeth, about that tour with, with Neil. Sure. So Neil is um, a, spe a specific kind of person, and um, I consider him, like all the, the Sandy Hook families that I worked with for this book, um, to be a friend. Um, he... He, he talked best in the car because he didn't have to look at me and nor I at him. And so it was just one of those conversations that you can have about difficult things because you don't have to really look at each other. You can just focus on what you want to say. Um, and he used to, you know, do that sometimes. And so he was offering me a tour of Newtown. And at the same time, he was unspooling the story of, um, you know, Jesse's last morning with him and kind of doing a, a what if, you know, um, what if, you know, there's a, there is a um, big uh, former state mental hospital called Fairfield Hills that was built in Newtown. And, um, and it was a residential facility that was closed, you know, in the 90s after that kind of treatment went out of style and, you know, outpatient treatment um, became the preferred mode. But, you know, he was contemplating, you know, what if the gunman had actually been an inpatient in that hospital, working on the hospital farm, working in its workshop um, and monitored? Maybe he wouldn't have been holed up in the basement of a new town suburban house with an arsenal uh, mapping out uh, mass shootings on a spreadsheet um, and completely isolated in his world, even from his own mother, who was the only person in his world at the time of the shooting, um, with whom he communicated only by email. So this was a deeply disturbed person who, you know, whose sort of specter hung over Neil. And, um, and he just was tortured by these what ifs. Um, even on the morning of the shooting, uh, Jesse seemed like he was out of sorts, like he yes. did you know, yeah. really want to go to school or, um, you know, like he wasn't looking forward to what would have been a kind of festive day because they were having their parents in to decorate gingerbread houses and things like that. And, and Neil is just sort of tortured with this idea of, you know, what, what if he didn't go to school that day? And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain, although I wouldn't speak for all the parents ever, but I'm fairly certain that, you know, the ones I did speak with the, those thoughts went through their minds and, you know, that is that does sort of hint at the fact that we can all be at various moments in our lives and under severe trauma, we can all be conspiracy theorists or deniers. You know, Scarlett, uh, Jesse Lewis's mom told me that she would wake up and say, you know, oh, that was a nightmare. I'm glad it's over. And then realize that that was her life. And, you know, as she was being tormented by these conspiracy theorists, it ran through her mind, you know, if you think this didn't happen, if you're so convinced that my son didn't die, find him, bring him back, 
Yes. And, you know, it just gives you a sense of the, the, you know, the torment that, that these family members live through every day and the secondary trauma inflicted by people who denied that they had lost their loved ones in this way. Yes. Elizabeth, I have to congratulate you on giving us the insights into the children and to the parents you do it so gracefully. You do it so well. It, it, it's it's just wonderful how you you just explained it to us. Uh, just talking to me, uh, it, it's it's just wonderful the way you've done that. It, it, it's 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 very it's honouring the children and the families at the same time, and I really appreciate that. I Norman, want to thank turn... you very much, but I really have to say that. Yeah. Um, I just wrote down that all credit goes to the families, yes, their yes. grace and, and their hopefulness. Um, it comes through in their words in the book. They, yes. they really, for everything they've been through, they still have hope that yes. the system will work for them. And that by raising their voices in talking with me, that they can force some change and maybe persuade readers to join in the battle that they've waged over these years against misinformation online. Yes, yes. I think I, I maybe slightly correct myself there and say you didn't, you haven't altered anything. You've given it, gave it to us exactly as you saw it and as you heard it. And I really appreciate that. I'm kind of reluctant to the next part that I want to talk about, Elizabeth. I'm kind of reluctant because I, 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 part of me feels I don't want to give any more attention to people like Alex Jones. I, I, I kind of feel like he's done enough work for himself. Uh, I, but I, I think it really is essential that we do talk about Mr. Jones and some of the other deniers and conspiracy theorists there's one that does stand out as well for me and that's doug mcguire who made the movie or the video we need to talk about sandy hook it's mm -hmm. an, an amateur conspiracy video let's let's talk about alex jones just for a moment before we do let's let's and i don't think we really need for for my listeners to know to explain who alex jones is other than I, it, this is somebody that i i truly do not understand the where's and why for's and i'm i have a feeling nor do you elizabeth uh, about mr <laughs> jones he's an entertainer and 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 that's what it's about it's about like so many pundits we see on tv and on radio etc but what's really weird about this is that people take it for they take it seriously they take take it not not even just the conspiracies but they believe the words of somebody like alex jones i'd just like to hear elizabeth williamson's take on on jones uh, just your overview sure um you're right um characterizing alex jones and why he does what he does and even whether he believes what he says or mm. not um is an undertaking it's hard to comprehend you know where he is at any given time because he is all over the map on it. So for example, what he would say is at one point when he started get coming under pressure for what he was repeating about the Sandy Hook families um, and the lies he was spreading, he would say, okay, I believe that children died. But then at the same time, he's got a video still posted to the InfoWars website at the time that said, I know so I've seen soap operas and I know actors when I see them. 
and referring to the family members by name and putting recordings of their words um, up on his website and accusing them of being actors. So he tries to play both sides of the fence. What is undeniable is that the Sandy Hook theory um, that he concocted um, and the, the lies that he spread, both coming from other conspiracy theorists and those that he came up with himself within hours of the shooting, um, contributed enormously to his traffic to his website. So between 2013 and 2016, the traffic to InfoWars website doubled to 50 million monthly average users. So he made a lot of money from propagating and talking about um, these false theories around Sandy Hook. And his business model, by the way, is genius because he sells products which are geared toward the paranoias and the fears of his audience. So yes. diet supplements uh, for people who distrust traditional medicine, it's body armor for people preparing for the coming apocalypse or civil war. It's dried food and, um, and, and um, supplies uh, for your doomsday prepper shelter. Um, and he sells these things interspersed. Oh, um, air and water filters, because of course <laughs> the government poisons the air and water on purpose to control your brain. Um, and he hawks all of these you know, interspersed with making these uh, terrible claims about Sandy Hook and other major events. So this would all be pretty awful, um, but pretty isolated if he didn't find, you know, in Donald Trump, uh, a link to the mainstream, what became um, a portion of the mainstream Republican Party, because Donald Trump was an outlier candidate in 2016 in a crowded field. And he saw Alex Jones' listenership as a valuable constituency that could put him over the top. Yes. I'm so glad that you linked into Trump there because I had just made a note for myself to, to, to bring that into the conversation. Yeah. It's, okay, let's move on just a little bit. The, you, you touch on the money that, that Jones was making and still makes. And then that sort of links in to social media, to, uh, to Facebook and all the other social media platforms. You write quite a lot about that in the book. And that's something else, which is just like, oh, goodness gracious, this is, this is just horrible. Just I, again, I'd just like to get your take on the whole social media using this horrible, horrible tragedy to make money yet again, to make money and not being judicial about it. But my question, of course, is not just not to you, Elizabeth, but how far do we go with the First Amendment with, it, with free speech? And that's where it all gets very convoluted, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So um, Kara Swisher, who's a, a well-known tech journalist who I interview in my book, yeah. um, you know, likes to say that these platforms um, use the First Amendment as a cloak for naked greed. Yes. Um, their interest is in keeping you on the platform as long as possible so that they can scoop up your personal information and use it to target you with advertising. That's their business model. It's not creating a world community. That's a sort of side effect. Um, it's not you know, linking people to their lost loves and their future spouses as happens. Um, 
it is separating you from your data and selling you things. So it is in their distinct disinterest to take down uh, bad actors, to keep them from the platform, to, um, to take down content that's harmful, that hurts people's reputations. And they are protected in that by something in the Telecommunications Act of 1996 called Section 230, which is a legal shield for the big social media platforms. It treats them not as actors in this repugnant material, but as simply the pipeline over which it travels. So yes. it means that when someone is harmed by this material, they have no recourse with the social media companies themselves. So it costs them absolutely nothing to refuse to take down this material. And not only do they not take it down, their algorithms speed it to people who are like-minded, who like this kind of content. So if you click on one conspiracy theory, you will suddenly find many more in your newsfeed or you know, in, in your on your YouTube channel or what have you, because enragement is engagement. So the more toxic, incendiary, inflammatory the content, the more people engage, the more they fight with each other, um, and the, the more profitable that is because they will stay there for hours engaging with that material. So yes. it really is a vicious model for those who are targeted for online abuse. Before we leave Alex Jones, you did talk to him, didn't you? Yes. Yes. And what about his wife, Kelly Jones? Mm-hmm. I did. You spoke to her, I did yes. her as well. Yeah. yeah. Just share with, with my listeners just a little bit of the conversation you had with Kelly Jones. Sure. So I met her first in person in 2018 when I first began working on this book. And, um, and you know, she was living – so the, the couple had split up. Um, yeah. They had, after a lengthy court battle, they had joint custody of their three children. Um, she had the house. So I went to meet her at, you know, what had been their family home um, when she was still married to Alex. It had this, um, you know, it was a kind of um, Texas Xanadu. It had this <laughs> yes. uh, fantastic um pool complex with, you know, yeah. European statuary and waterfalls yeah. and, you know, a barbecue pit like you'd see in a restaurant and, um, you know, all kinds of um, uh, furnishings. And it was just really something. Um, and we we sat in the, the cabana of the, <laughs> of the pool um, and chatted. Um, so she has, um, she was not in favor of what became Alex's most successful business model, you know, to sell supplements, which was the first thing they went into. Um, And so when they divorced, she was um, not part of her settlement did not include um, much of the proceeds of that particular business. Um, And so there has been an ongoing battle. She she um, would like to limit Alex Jones's exposure to their children. Um, so that's part of the battle. Um, there's also a battle over money because when they, they split up, it's, it made for sort of lopsided um, situation in which you know, he continues to make tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, so that 
you know, that was kind of the, the, the situation when I met her, but, um, you know, they began InfoWars together in the late nineties. Um, it was not the same place and the theories were not nearly as dark and as xenophobic and, um, and as threatening as they were after their split. Um, and she described herself as a kind of governor on Alex Jones when they were married, you know, saying, no, you don't want to go there. No, that's not the kind of thing you want to say. They're, they both are, are sort of conspiratorially minded. They started yes. the business together. They were pretty convinced um, that the government, you know, certainly was um, a bad actor, at least in some events. Um, but it was not nearly as dark as it was after Sandy Hook. Yeah, thank you for that. I, one of the reasons that I asked you to talk about Kelly Jones is that I, I just loved reading about that ostentatious um, house and swimming pool and pools and all the rest of it. And, and But it sort of that equals the the horrible situation of the of the families from Sandy Hook. And it also gives us a glimpse into the fact that Alex Jones and Kelly Jones had a family. There's there's a yet another family. And, and it's just the, the, the sort of the. The juxtaposition of the Jones family and the Jones lifestyle and the tragedy of the families. And Kelly will tell you, um, Norman, that um, she wasn't in favor of all that ostentation, that she didn't find that to be something that she aspired to and that it it was um, and that it was hard to manage and maintain and and all of that. And, you know, I I would just let readers judge for themselves on that. Yes. Um, That is, you know, but I, I should include that 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 is her stance, that it became sort of unwieldy and, um, and difficult. And she didn't, she wanted to have a quieter family life and not be traveling all over the, the country, like a yes. traveling roadshow, um, which right. is what they did occasionally when the kids were small, but yes, you're absolutely right. You know, they, they have three children and those children were very close um, to the ages of the Sandy Hook children. So it makes it all the more mystifying that that he could spread these yes. false theories. In your book, In Sandy Hook, you, you document uh, uh, many of the deniers and conspiracy theorists. All of them are just, I guess, tragic people, sad people. I mean, we could go on. But there's one in particular that I found very interesting. Doug McGuire, the man that made the amateur conspiracy video, we need to talk about Sandy Hook. Yes. Can you just give us a little insight? Well, insight maybe is the wrong word, but a little overview <laughs> of Mr. McGuire. Yeah, he he is really one of the more intriguing characters to me on the conspiracist side because he was one of the people who did cross over as you know the psychologists i interview in the book toward the end will tell you once people believe in these conspiracy theories it's really difficult to talk them out of it because mm-hmm. that there it's not only about the theory itself and it's really not about politics as much as it is about psychology so connecting with other conspiracy theorists provides many of these people who had been isolated, that is a trait that they share, Um, it provides them with a community and a social bond. So they would gather online, embroider these elaborate plots, praise each other for adding to, you know, this growing what what Lenny Posner, um, the Sandy Hook dad, father of Noah would say, um, you know, a conspiracy blob. So any bit of, you know, uh, 
factual information gets embroidered into the plot, any new ripple, um, they praise each other for coming up with it. So Doug was part of that community. Um, he was raising his little boy who was an infant um, while his wife was working. This was out in California. Yeah. Um, and he first went online, you know, his son would be napping and he was kind of alone by himself and a little bored. He'd go online and saw, you know, Bigfoot conspiracy theories, but it wasn't long until an Aurora shooting conspiracy theory popped up in um, on YouTube. And he looked at that and he kept going. And so once you click on that, of course, the algorithms, like we discussed, start to deliver more and more of that same type of content to you. So he went down the rabbit hole and he found uh, that that video that you mentioned, we need to talk about Sandy Hook, which was created uh, by a group of particularly toxic uh, conspiracy theorists. And because Doug had gone out to California, actually from Massachusetts, in order to be an actor, and he had a background before his son was born of working as an extra and making a couple of indie films. So he knew the industry, at least from you know its fringes, and he knew how to get a little bit more attention for what he thought was a pretty solid effort at creating a conspiracy video. Um, and so he got in touch with that group of people. They became his, his friend group, as you will. Um, and he helped them to promote that on IMDP, which is a, you know, a website yeah. for the film industry. So, um, so he, he began to you know, circulate with these people and he had a falling out with them because he wanted to do a video that was actually exposing another conspiracy theorist as a fraud. And, um, and as someone who was just in it for the money uh, and was actually kind of a dangerous person. And they rejected that. They said, we don't go after other YouTubers, um, which gives you an idea again of the sense of community among these folks. and. So he said he made a lot of accusations. He said, all you want to do is talk about Sandy Hook. Can't we leave that alone? Um, I'm sick of you people. He kind of flew off the handle. Um, and then they sort of went out of touch for a while. Then a woman approached him who had been part of that group. He thought all was forgiven. She started to reach out to him. They had a kind of almost online romance. And by that time, he, because of his conspiracy theorizing, was estranged from his wife. Yes. And there was an altercation in, that resulted in um, his losing custody of his son, at least temporarily. So this woman offered to help him regain custody and said, first, you have to clean up your social media accounts. So he gave her a password to his Facebook page, which she quickly surmised was probably the same password to a host of social media accounts, yes. because this was a man who lived almost entirely online. Um, and she savaged his reputation. Um, he describes, you know, how she went on his LinkedIn account and with a faked suicide note saying that, you know, impersonating him saying he was going to kill himself and he gets yeah. all kinds of phone calls. She got, you know, his personal information. She gained control of all of his social media accounts. She put porn on them. Um, that was uh, Photoshopped to make it look like it was him. One night he watched her as she played striptease music and had recorded a video of herself erasing 
every photograph of his son from his Facebook account and every video. So for a man who was already isolated, by that time, he, he had no source of income. He was living in his car. Um, he had hit rock bottom and he reached out to Lenny Posner, um, the Sandy Hook dad who had taken on these hoaxers for years and was making by that point, um, which was in the late um, 20 teens, he was making tremendous progress by getting material and content taken down. And, um, and he approached him in what was a remarkable conversation, asked Lenny's forgiveness because he had participated in this Sandy Hook hoax group and had savaged Lenny personally as part of that um, and said, can you help me? And just explained his situation. And Lenny did. Um, they gradually got control of his social media accounts back from this woman and got her locked out. But it took four years. It's a horrible story within a story. The, the, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you explained that one to us. It, the, the Doug Maguire stories. There's so many, there's so much more. There's, incredible amount to discuss in this book and once again i want to let my listeners know i'm talking to elizabeth williamson sandy hook is the title an american tragedy and the battle for truth i would like to keep you for as long as i possibly can to just to go <laughs> into so many details in this book i do want to ask you a question you got to know the family's world and doc document their their lives before and after sandy hook so when you finally sent off your manuscript to your editor or to the publisher, mm -hmm. had writing Sandy Hook affected you, Elizabeth? So I think that what really affected me the most was in the final stages of preparing the book, the last few chapters I had taken. I did this while I was working at the New York Times. And so I was writing a lot in at night and on the weekends. And um, I took a couple of um, vacation weeks to try and just finish this. Mm. And this was um, at the end of 2020, right around the time of the election in which President Trump was every day insisting that first the election would be rigged and then after he lost, that it was rigged and all of the mayhem that went on around that. And I remember on January 6th, 2021, I'd had lunch. Um, I was procrastinating. I thought I would um, finish, you know, the last chapter or two. Um, I was really up against it. And I turned on CNN and I saw the rioters at the Capitol. And I live in Washington, D.C. So... Yeah. I just sat there agog and I thought, this is the end of the book. I mean, from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate, to QAnon, to coronavirus, to the 2020, 2021 election, to January 6th, there we were seeing the impact on, not only on our society, but on our democracy of the unbridled spread of these lies. Yes. And, sometimes the same actors and certainly the same delivery systems, social media. So it lent a lot of urgency to the book. Yes. Yes. 
which now leads me to, I guess, a final question, and that is, you're a feature writer of the New York Times, but you you began your career as a foreign correspondent, I understand, yes. including covering Eastern Europe for the Wall Street Journal. So I'm just curious to know with what is going on now with this terrible situation in Ukraine, yet there are people that are denying this is happening. There are conspiracy theorists around that. It's yet this goes on, doesn't it? Norman, I am so glad you brought that up because something that has really been agitating me this week has been that Russia, after they bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol, Ukraine last week, resulting in the deaths of some pregnant women who were evacuated. We've all seen the photographs. Yes. Uh, Lavrov, the foreign minister, and Russia at large, the Kremlin, has characterized those women who we now know were dying as they were being evacuated, some of them, as crisis actors. This term was coined to describe the Sandy Hook parents by the conspiracy theorists. It is the most grotesque and cynical denial for Russia, which has for decades, stirred unrest in this country after every mass shooting, has capitalized on it to point to our society here as inferior to their own, adopting the term crisis actors to describe the victims of their war crimes really drives home how pervasive this is, um, for lack of a better term. Um, And then the other thing You know, my 10 years as a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe, including three years in Vladimir Putin's Russia, um, in his St. Petersburg, where I lived. um, During the Cold War, it took a sophisticated foreign adversary like Russia to reach millions of Americans with a disinformation campaign. Um, I can say now with my experience and what we have all seen in the light of the 2020 election is that we don't need to worry about Russia alone as a source of interference in our elections. We have shown that we can do it ourselves. And and there is a certain segment of our population that is willing to sow the same kind of discord that used to be the province of Russia. It no longer takes uh, a foreign adversary and all of its power and all of its sophistication to do this. You just need a group of people with their smartphones. Yes. Oh, so well said, Elizabeth. Oh, my goodness. This is such an essential read. I highly, highly recommend it. It's so incredibly well written. You're a wonderful guest. I'd like to talk to you for hours on end. We could we could go off on tangents. It'd be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, Norman, it, it's a privilege to be on with you. And I really thank you for for your words about the book and for your interest. Thank you so much. I have been talking to Elizabeth Williamson. Her book is titled Sandy Hook. An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you, Norman. Thanks for having me. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com.
www.co.co. That's C-O. Ukraine-based electronic producer Sixth Crowd, a.k.a. Dari Maskamova, has a new single, Sokolonko, inspired by an old Harvest song. This is the first offering from the album Step, which she was working on when Russia invaded Ukraine, turning her country into a war zone. And about this song, Dari says, This is a Ukrainian song from Donbass, my dear home region, which Russia is tearing apart right now. I didn't know if I'd have a chance to do it later. In my research, as I learned more about Ukrainian folk music, I noticed that modern culture has plenty of references to music from the western and central parts of my country, but nothing from the east. Nothing from my home. Culturally, it simply didn't exist. So I decided I wanted to change that and bring songs from East Ukraine back to life. To remind myself and everyone that Donbass is a historical part of Ukraine, no matter how badly Putin wants to destroy it. Oh, oh, oh. 
Sokolonko, the work of Six Crowd, aka Dari Maskamova, from Kiev, Ukraine. A very large thank you to my guest, Elizabeth Williamson, and a big thank you to you for listening. You can hear this edition of Life Elsewhere again at our affiliate outlets and as a podcast. All the details are up at lifeelsewhere.co. But don't forget, I urge you to let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. Send me a few words via email. My address comes up in the closing credits. Till next time, be well, be safe, and remember, it costs nothing. Be nice. Bye-bye. Listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.